Hello, and welcome to the Be Brave podcast series. In this series, our host, Allison Pickens, Chief Operating Officer at Gainsight, interviews heroes from around our community, such as servant leaders who are paving the way for others through their action and mentorship, voyagers who have decided to take a leap of faith and help pave the way for others through their actions and decisions, and reformers who will share their stories of reformation both in their company and communities and provide useful tips on how you can face adversity head on. In this episode, Allison sits down with Louis Bullard, Animal Welfare Program Manager at the Open Philanthropies Project, to discuss why animal welfare is critical for fighting global warming and climate change. Welcome back to the Be Brave campaign. I'm Allison Pickens, your host. And uh, for those who are joining us for the first time, the Be Brave campaign is all about showcasing people in our community who have courageously stood up for what's right. Um, so, you know, this relatively new show, we've done a few episodes so far, and I'm so excited for this next one. Um, so we have our new guest on the Be Brave campaign, Lewis Ballard, who is program officer for the Farm Animal Welfare uh, Program at the Open Philanthropy Project. So welcome, Lewis. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome. So to kick things off, can you share a little bit about um, what do you do in your role and what is the Open Philanthropy Project? Sure. So the Open Philanthropy Project uh, grew out of a collaboration between GiveWell, which evaluates charities, and Good Ventures, which is the foundation of one of the Facebook co-founders, Dustin Moskowitz, and his wife, Kara Juna. And the, the uh, central mission is to do the most good we can in the world. And you know, obviously that's, that's a huge mission. And so yeah. we've tried to identify kind of sub areas where we think we can have a lot of impact, important areas where we think we can, we can make a big difference. One of those areas is around farm and warfare or factory farming. And uh, I've been there now for four years working on that issue. And main, uh, main job is kind of to work out uh, how we can most effectively uh, deploy mainly philanthropic capital to uh, reduce the suffering of animals in factory farms and ultimately in factory farming. Which is an incredibly um, lofty and I, I yeah. personally think <laughs> an important goal. Um, now, this is a subject that I think is not a consensus mm-hmm. subject yet. It's not, I right. mean, if there's not, um, you know, universal agreement mm-hmm. that animal wel- welfare is an important goal, particularly yeah. relative to other ones oh, that yeah. people might hold dear. So I'm very excited to chat with you yeah. about how you got the courage to pursue mm-hmm. this career. Um, so let's start with that. Would you mind walking us through how did you end up focused on this? Sure. Yeah. So when I was a teenager, um, I started sort of thinking about uh, having a duty to do something beyond myself in the world. And, and I think first I kind of learned about the scale of global poverty, and, uh, global public health crises, and wanted to do something on that. Uh, and then I learned about factory farming. And uh, really what struck me on factory farming, having spent a lot of time researching global poverty, was on that issue the solutions were tough and there were a lot of really smart people working on it. On factory farming, no one was working on it. And the solutions seemed pretty simple. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of basically everything that's done in factory farming is done to save a few here and there. It's, it's, it's really just a money issue. So that's kind of what drew me into, into factory farming in the first place. I, uh, you know, the more I learned about it, kind of the more I became convinced this was something I needed to, to do something about. And yeah. since my teenage years have just been trying to find the right way to do something about it. Yeah. And would you say, are you someone who is particularly, maybe in an innate way, like mm-hmm. empathetic to animals? Do you think you possess an empathy gene that 
that <laughs> some other people don't. It's it's just interesting how intuitive yeah. it was to you that yeah. this is obvious. Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm any more empathetic than other people. I mean, I think everyone is empathetic to dogs and cats. And, and yeah. for that matter, you know, like I think people are empathetic when they see a pet pig. I think so much of it's just that most people are not confronted by the realities on a regular basis. And so it's kind of the industry has deliberately set up a wall and it's really hard to see past that wall. And so I think, you know, in a perverse way, I got lucky in that I kind of had a bunch of experiences seeing past that wall. Uh, and I think, you know, most people just don't have that. And so that does make me optimistic that people, I think, ultimately have the empathy to care. Yeah. It's just how do we make sure that people are aware of this issue and how do we motivate them to act? Right. So you think it's primarily really just an information issue. If more people were aware of what, were go- what was going on, this movement would really accelerate that much faster. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, obviously with information, you then still need people to act. So, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a next step of what are the actions we can take. But I do think that at a basic level, I think many people have a kind of vague idea that factory farms are bad and there's something bad going on. But I don't think most people have a sense of the scale, have a sense of, of the, sort of how absurdly frivolous the reasons are why uh, factory farming is going on, and a sense of just like how much could be done to, to ameliorate it. Yeah, that's amazing. And you know, um, I'm curious to know whether there was a formative moment in your life where perhaps you saw an animal being slaughtered or yeah. encountered just um, despair in some way mm. that motivated you to act or, or was it largely more of like an intellectual exercise? It was a bit of both. So early on when I was a teenager, um, I walked into a live animal market in Vietnam and I think that was really powerful for connecting me to between dogs and cats who were being kept in cages there for the meat trade alongside of chickens and pigs and really seeing that for all of them there was there was no difference. They, they all were feeling feelings. They were all afraid. Uh, and so just kind of feeling that sense of like, wow, all of these animals are in this together. They're all suffering. And, and initially tried to convince myself like, oh, you know, that's only in uh, more developing countries. But then, of course, you know, when you start doing research, you see we've just done a better job in developed nations of hiding. It's actually on a far larger scale. Um, so that was one experience. Another one was I, uh, I went and visited a, a slaughterhouse in New Zealand. And that was kind of, for me, something where I really wanted to see like, see this with my own eyes uh those were very confronting we ended up spending three hours uh you know watching hundreds of animals be killed right in front of us uh and yeah i mean it's it's every bit as bad as it looks in the the videos so uh and then the final experience i'd say on that is i uh a couple of years ago once i was already sort of within this course had a chance to visit factory farms in india and so Mm -hmm. i did a tour of uh different whole bunch of different factory farms chicken factory farms fish farms pig farms cow farms and uh again consistently i mean it's it's very similar to what you see on video it's obviously more confronting in person but uh the reality is any factory farm you walk into you can take appalling footage on because the system itself is what's so appalling absolutely for me um i came to this cause i think a lot later than you Mm -hmm. did um i certainly grew up eating meat um you know uh, having hamburgers Mm -hmm. associated with july 4th and um, you know, pizza with cheese, like every Thursday, you know, we actually, we have, um, in my family, we have something very dear to us called like icy and slicey night, <laughs> like ice cream and pizza. And it's yeah. like a whole family tradition around it. And anyway, I, you know, I grew up just believing that it was natural yeah. to do this. Um, but over the past few years, there've been a few moments where I've been awakened to this cause mm-hmm. a lot more. For yeah. example, a couple of years ago, I listened to a podcast that talked about this term carnism. Mm. Which is something I'd never heard before. I'd heard yeah. about vegetarianism, yeah. veganism, pescetarianism. Um, but this person who was talking about carnism was making the claim, which I think is very valid, that 
uh, it's strange to label alternative forms of diet mm-hmm. that are not the norm, but not label mm-hmm. the most predominant diet <laughs> that people have. Mm-hmm. And the way she described carnism was that um, it was, you know, the belief that certain animals mm-hmm. should be consumed for their meat, mm-hmm. but not others. Right. Which she described as being a logical incoherence mm-hmm. and that, you know, we are all living with cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Um, when we eat certain animals, but, mm-hmm. but have others as pets who yeah. like, and, and where, you know, a huge percentage of the internet is like cat videos right, <laughs> and right. dog videos. It sounds like you experienced something mm-hmm. similar when in Vietnam, you actually yeah. saw dogs like right. in cages, right? Yeah, I definitely, definitely agree. I mean, the, I think the, the person who kind of coined that term, Melanie Joy, uh, has, she's written a few books on this. Much better yeah. Than me. yeah, no, and, and I think, I mean, her work's great. I think particularly pinning it down to the fact that it's, it's not really, sometimes people say, you know, we just need to get people to care about animals, but everyone already cares about animals. I mean, basically universally around the world, people care about some kinds of animals. Uh, and, you know, certainly here in the U.S., people care a lot about dogs and cats. I mean, there's, you know, people want the strongest legal protections for them. It's bipartisan issue. Uh, but it really is which animals and and when you really look at that kind of breakdown there's no reason necessarily you know I mean pigs are just as smart as dogs are they have you know as rich an emotional life they have just as many needs uh, so it really you know it, it, it is this kind of bizarre thing that just because that's the way it's always been uh, we kind of adopt that as it's normal and uh, you know and then we create other myths around it we tell ourselves it's necessary we tell ourselves that this is all you know for, for some greater good um, and, but I think ultimately it just comes back to that fact that we're born into a world where, you know, it's the way things are. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for me, um, as I talk with other people in my life about my aspirations to, like, really become 100% vegan, I can't say I'm there sure. yet, but, but like, I, that's my that's my goal. Um, it's honestly, it's hard having a conversation sometimes because mm-hmm. I might be out to dinner with friends oh. and they want to order plates that we're all yeah. going to share and I have to be the annoying person <laughs> on the table who's like, I'm sorry, I don't eat that. Yeah. But like, I, I don't want to tell you not to eat it because mm-hmm. I sound judgy at the same mm-hmm. time. Like, it'd be great if no one ate me. Ate me. Yeah. So, like, how do you deal with situations like yeah. that in your life? Yeah, it's a tough one. I mean, I think that people, you know, immediately this issue becomes very personal. And yeah. so, you know, oftentimes I really try and direct the conversation to more the policy level and thinking more about the system. Uh, in the same way that I think, you know, if someone's an environmentalist, uh, they don't kind of focus immediately like on, you know, how few flights can I fly? How little space can I drive? I mean, those things are good, right? But they also think about like, how can we get the US government to do something about this, to regulate yeah. coal power plants? And so uh, similarly here, I think the most important thing is how do we get government regulation? How do we get corporate policies? How do we get things on the kind of macro scale? And then I do think, you know, insofar as people are looking for things to do in their own life, certainly like cutting back your, your intake of factory farmed products is, is a really useful thing to do. And, you know, I'm personally vegan, um, and but I do think, um, yeah, I, I do think that it, it's been framed in the past very much as like, this is a baseline, you need to personally do this. Whereas I think the reality, there are many different ways people can contribute on this issue. Yeah. And, and, you know, diet might be part of it, but it's often a, a bigger part of it, being an activist or speaking up in, in the corporate boardroom or all these other places where you can kind of have an impact. Let's start talking about those broad-based yeah. broad goals. Um, what is the desired, the desired outcome hmm. of the work that you are doing? Yeah, so in our case, we're kind of neutral on exactly what the outcome looks like. Our goal is to reduce as much suffering as possible. We don't want to see animals suffering needlessly on factory farms. 
you know, I would say within this space, there are a couple of different visions people have of, of how that might happen, and, and it might be some combination of these visions. You know, one vision is that food technology, so the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger or, or cell-based meat and future growing in labs, uh, that those things might replace meat entirely, and so that perhaps you know potentially just all animal farming becomes becomes obsolete. I know, you know, another vision people have is, is one of more pasture-based, free-range systems in which animals have more, you know, behavioral access. Now, of course, we couldn't do that at the current levels of meat consumption. There's, factory farming is a necessity at these levels, so that would need to be paired mm-hmm. with either a lot of alternatives or, or a substantial reduction in, in meat consumption. Uh, and there, you know, there are a few other kind of visions people see that sort of play on some combination of those. Uh, you know, in our minds, we, we want to kind of advance every promising angle because we don't know how the future is going to play out. We don't know which of these is, is going to happen. And our guess is, is each of these solutions has got kind of a role to play in, in, in the long term. Now, I know um, you and your organization are quite metrics oriented, yeah. which it, I think is captured in your initial expression of mm-hmm. we want to reduce suffering, yeah. right? And, which kind of implies suffering could be measured in some <laughs> yeah. way. So what are the metrics that you look at? So the, the first metric is, is how many animals are being factory farm. So we have, uh, you know, data on that. We know that there are around uh, 20 billion land animals in factory farms at any point in time, about 75 billion slaughtered annually because they, they go through very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are another uh, 60 billion farmed fish on, on factory farms. Uh, so, you know, we know there's this huge scale and, and we know, first of all, we can reduce those numbers. So that's kind of the first metric we're thinking about reducing. We also think about uh, how bad conditions are and, and can we reduce the severity of conditions. And so, uh, obviously far harder to pin a number on what an animal's experience is in life, how bad its life is, but we can look at some of the kind of worst practices, so battery cages for hens, completely immobilize them. There's a lot of scientific evidence suggesting this deprives hens of all their kind of basic behavioral needs, yeah. uh, and so that's something we can say, okay, these seem to be amongst the worst off animals. Let's prioritize, uh, and there are 7 billion of them in cages, so like, let's prioritize that and uh, see how many of those we can get out of cages. So that's, you know, and, and then again, we can count that kind of progress over time. Absolutely. Now, um, you know, on the one hand, we might take it for granted that animal suffering is just inherently wrong. As we talked about, like animals feel pain. They have uh, certain forms of, well, intelligence and and much like the pets that we have. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think some people might argue, well, it's a shame that they're suffering. However, so many humans Mm -hmm. are suffering. There's poverty and hunger throughout the world. Um, you know, should we really be focused on animal suffering mm-hmm. when perhaps we should be dedicating more resources yeah. to human suffering? So how do you counter that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. <laughs> so I, I would say everyone I know who works on animal suffering has also worked on human suffering or is currently working on human suffering. And that's certainly true of our foundation. You know, the, the biggest area of grants is to people in extreme poverty uh, and, and people uh, facing life-threatening illnesses. So that's the biggest thing we do. We, we're still able to do factory farming in addition to that. And I've, I've found that generally to be true of funders in the space, activists in the space. Um, and I've also found it to be true of many people who are really focused their lives on easing human suffering, often at the same time have gone vegetarian or vegan. And, you know, have recognized that's something they can do in tandem with focusing their lives on, on reducing human suffering. So definitely think there should be more attention to both. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, in general, the philanthropic sector is still a small portion of, of the world. The number of people who devote themselves to courses is still a small portion of the world. So I think the, the good news is we can kind of increase that total pie of the amount of money, the amount of attention and effort going to problems. And, and that should be both human and animal. It can be an and, not an or. It can definitely be an and, not an or, yeah. 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 Now, one thing I've learned a lot about is actually the connection between um, animal rights, activism, mm-hmm. uh, human health, yeah. 
mm. and also our environment. Right. Um, and I, I, that that interconnection actually wasn't as apparent yeah. to me, you know, even like a year ago. So, yeah. um, how do you see the connection between those three movements? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's, you know, first of all, on the human health side, factory farming's use of antibiotics is, is really starting to get more attention. And yeah. I think for the longest time, uh, the industry has just kind of gone away with this. I mean, 80% of antibiotics used in the US are fed to farm animals, not humans. And so if we're worrying about these antibiotics becoming, uh, people becoming resistant to these antibiotics, uh, we, we need to look at farm animals. It's not just, you know, it's not just humans. And, and the reason those antibiotics are used, traditionally they were used because they made animals grow faster. But even secondly, above that is because within factory farming conditions, you can't keep all the animals healthy uh, in, in these terrible conditions unless you lace their feet with antibiotics. These are not antibiotics going to sick animals. These are antibiotics yeah. going to healthy animals to prevent them from becoming really sick yeah. in these environments that, that are just horrific environments. Uh, so, you know, that, that's that's one way. And I think we're increasingly seeing the World Health Organization and other groups really trying to draw attention to that that connection to human health. Um, I think in terms of the other connection is at the, the level of communities. So if you look, for instance, in North Carolina, uh, all of the, the pig factory farms in North Carolina is the second biggest pig factory farming state in the US, all the pig factory farms were in the poorest part of the state. They're, and they're all in what is basically a huge tidal floodplain. Yeah. And so every time North Carolina gets hit with a hurricane, everyone around there gets manure washed up onto their front lawns, gets, you know, horrific smells in their house. Yeah, uh, and it's, yeah, and, it's, and, you know, as you can imagine, it's also correlated with race in North Carolina as well. So it's really kind of an environmental racism issue. I and, saw that in a documentary recently, yeah. actually. I think it was, that whole area was profiled. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I mean I think it you know it, it definitely deserves more attention. This kind of connection between factory farms have traditionally located themselves wherever people are you know least powerful, at least able to resist, because no one wants a factory farm next door. So they find places where people are not politically organized enough or not rich enough to be able to say no, and they put the factory farms there. Yeah. Uh, and, and the same deal, you know, with slaughterhouses. I mean, slaughterhouse work is some of the most grueling work there is, uh, some of the most dangerous work there is. Incredibly high staff turnover. Rates. Um, and again, you see very little on the way of kind of labor protections, very little on the way of, of protections to the employees who work there too. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, on, the, on that second point, how is there, what's the correlation between, um, uh, you know, animal factory farming and uh, the environment? Yeah. So this. Couple of, couple of connections. I mean, one is on the climate side. So uh, the, the FAO estimates that animal agriculture is responsible for 14.5% of global emissions. Uh, and that could even be higher if you take into account two other things. So one is that doesn't take account of, of all of the land that's providing feed for factory farms. Mm. Uh, if that land were converted into forest, uh, that would become a carbon sink. And that's yeah. about a third of the world's arable land. So wow. we're talking about a huge amount of land. So wait, just to make sure I've got that. A third of the world's arable land goes to creating feed for animals. Exactly. Feed for animals or pastures directly for animals. Wow. Either pastures or feed, feed crop land, yeah. Wow. Uh, so yeah, huge amounts of land we're talking about. So if you, once you factor that in, that, that land use piece, uh, you're looking at a, a more significant, not necessarily contribution, but potential kind of contribution to solving factory farming. Uh, sorry, solving climate change. And then the um, the other piece is the uh, methane emissions, which currently we factor everything in on a 100-year timeline. That's kind of what climate scientists have agreed. We'll look at what's the global warming potential over 100 years. That leads to methane being counted very low because methane dissipates within 20 to 30 years in the atmosphere. Oh. If, however, you think the most important thing, and I think people are kind of coming to realize this, that like we may actually be in a lot of trouble in 20 to 30 years, it's not yeah. just 100 years away, then methane becomes a lot more important. 
because mm. you know when people are looking on a hundred year basis, they're basically assuming all the methane that gets released by factory farms in the next 70, 80 years doesn't matter yeah. because it's all gone by then. But if you think, well, we're actually going to be a really tough spot in 30 years, the methane is a far bigger problem. Uh, so that's the other kind of the other factor. Wow. It's just, it's amazing to me. Um, and as I've learned over the past year or so, it's like how much our diets mm. affect so many other issues yeah. in our society, whether it's like obesity yeah. or global warming, yeah. um, it, perpetuating inequality. Like yeah. it's, it, it is actually fascinating. One um, common objection though, that um, I've actually mold over myself yeah. like when I think about um, perpetuating factory farming is, well, you know, people were meant to mm-hmm. eat animals, yeah. right? Like people say, well, we have incisor teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we like hunted in the yeah. early days and we need protein and, right. and, and, and it's impossible to get the right amount of protein mm-hmm. unless you... Uh, unless you eat animals. Mm-hmm. What would you say to that objection? I mean, I think cavemen needed to eat meat. Uh, I'm not sure that really applies today. I think there are a lot of things that... Are, cavemen yeah. also needed, like, loincloths. And- right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. Things we don't do. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think we have I think we have a lot of... You know, there are a lot of things that kind of over time, as society's progressed, we've recognized that things that are traditions that are still wrong, even though they're traditions. And, uh, you know, I think factory farming is going to be one of those things. So I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's totally the case that for some people it's, it's harder to move away from meat that there are uh, challenges and so on but at the very least I think the system of production of factory farming uh, is, is just incredibly hard to justify and, and you know, the other thing I'd say on that basis is not even traditional I mean factory farming has only existed for the last 50 years yeah. before that we were talking about a very different kind of meat production in which animals were outside and did have you know, far better lives than they have now so if, if someone's kind of fixated on you know, what humans are meant to be doing uh, what humans have always done uh, it's, it's going to look really different from factory farming too definitely so let's talk about the strategies for actually yep. achieving some of these goals. And, um, you know, I know historically in the animal rights movement, there was, um, you know, a certain form of kind of stunt type activism, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Where you, you try to draw a ton of attention mm-hmm. to the cause and yeah. maybe like call out companies or people mm-hmm. who were doing wrongs. Um, yeah. And, and that, I think, went on for a couple decades. And, mm-hmm. like, I think probably there's consensus that it wasn't, like, super impactful <laughs> yeah. driving the cause. Right. You guys seem to be taking a, a different approach, mm-hmm. at least with the work that you were mm-hmm. doing. And I'm curious to know, like, what are you seeing out there that's making a difference? Yeah. So I think we've been really excited to see the kind of trajectory the animal movement's taken from, as you say, kind of more back in the day. And, you know, I think it was it was tough when no one was paying attention to this issue. You felt like you had to get a media at any cost. Uh, but, but I don't think that it now makes a lot sense to sort of do outrageous stunt tactics and things. Uh, the, the things that we have found most effective, one has been working to improve corporate animal welfare policies. So for a mixture of campaigning and uh, outreach to companies, working with them to get them to commit to stop using the kind of worst practices. So battery cages, gestation crates, uh, the worst abuses of meat chickens. Um, and that's been particularly effective, I think, because at this point, particularly in the U.S., uh, the government is kind of afraid to regulate anything where it comes to animal agriculture. The animal agriculture lobby is so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, but companies have a responsibility to their consumers. And in almost every one of these cases, if people knew how the meat that they're eating had been had sort of gone to them, how those animals have been treated in the process, they'd be shocked. Yeah. So I think a lot of companies realize they're kind of sitting on this liability, which is the only reason their customers are outraged is because they have no idea how the meat was was created. And and that's created the leverage point for, for groups to go to them and say, like, hey, there are ways for you to improve the treatment of animals. And, and here are kind of incremental changes you can make that can reduce suffering within the supply chain. So we've seen a lot of progress on that. The biggest companies within the U.S., Walmart, McDonald's on down, can need to get rid of cages, crates. 
Um, those are now extending globally, same happening in Europe, seeing similar progress in Latin America and across Asia. Mm. Um, the second area of progress is around meat alternatives and the technology there. And so, you know, we now have uh, the Impossible Burger, Burger King, uh, Beyond Meat, and all these kind of major fast food chains. And one of the things we've been focused on there is getting the policy framework right. So mm-hmm. making sure, you know, there, right now there are a whole bunch of U.S. ag states that are passing laws to try and uh, make it so, you, you know, if you sell a veggie burger, you can't call it a burger. You have yeah, to call it like, yeah. veggie imitation product or something. And so, you know, trying to prevent those kind of laws from ending up on the books. Also trying to ensure there's a good regulatory pathway everywhere in the world to both plant-based and cell-based meat. Uh and then as well, trying to get governments to start doing more R&D funding in the space. Mm. I think kind of analogous to what's happened on clean energy, where governments have been critical to bring down the price of renewable energy. Uh, we think governments are going to be really important to bring down the price of plant-based and cell-based alternatives to me. Mm. And uh, there are really similar reasons for them to invest in, in alternatives development. We're just starting to see that happening now. So uh, those are two areas I'd say that have been really promising. And then a third area that you know we, we're kind of excited about and, and see sort of the, the seeds of future progress is building a more global movement. And particularly in places like China, India, uh, Southeast Asia, where yeah. uh, you know a lot of the world's population growth is occurring, a lot of the, the growth in meat consumption is occurring, trying to have uh, really strong kind of vibrant local movements that can achieve policy success, that can achieve other, other wins in the future. And so building up those movements has been another big piece for us. Awesome. So if, let's say I'm a, a listener or, or a member of the audience who wants to get involved in some way. Um, what are the first one or two actions that I should take? Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, one thing would be to think if if there are things you can do with your own diet, <laughs> you know, and, and that could be as simple as taking out some of the worst factory farm products. So, I mean, something people don't realize, you know, caged eggs are one of the worst one of the worst things, just in terms mm-hmm. of the amount of suffering locked up in that one egg. Um, so thinking about what, you know, could I kind of change my diet? But I think the second thing is getting involved with advocacy groups in the space. So um, I'd recommend people go to the website of the Humane League or Mercy for Animals, the Good Food Institute, Animal Equality, um, all groups doing really exciting advocacy in the space and have kind of opportunities for volunteers to engage. Um, and then the third thing is thinking within, you know, their own situations is something they can do. Are they connected to people uh, in corporate decision making? Are they connected with policymakers? Are there unique opportunities they have? Or, you know, one thing a lot of people do now, like starting startups in the space. So do a startup to create better plant-based chicken. Uh, and I think there are a lot of really exciting business opportunities like that in the space too. Awesome. So I want to end on an inspirational note. Yeah. Um, can you share with us a major victory uh, for animal welfare that you were a part of? Sure. Uh, yeah, well, I think so. So probably the biggest one today has been getting rid of battery cages in the U.S. And so on that score, as of, uh, what, three or four years ago, uh, 95% of U.S. hens were kept in cages their entire life. Uh, and at the time, almost no companies had committed to getting rid of those cages in their supply chains. Um, after a set of campaigns and advocacy efforts, we saw first uh, McDonald's, uh, Subway, Burger King, all the biggest fast food chains, but then the biggest retailers, Costco, Walmart, Safeway, etc., all making commitments to getting rid of those. And those commitments are not yet fully implemented, but we've seen exciting progress. So we're now uh, 20% of US hens are now out of cages already, just a few years later, and that's, that's 65 million hens out of cages. Uh, and look to be on track to get the remaining 80% out of the cages with these pledges. So that's somewhere I think we've seen a lot of exciting, exciting progress already. Congratulations. That's awesome. Um, Louis, thank you so much for joining us on the Be Brave campaign. This has been just an amazing episode. I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I wish you the best of luck. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Be Brave series. If you want to hear more stories from influential heroes from around our community, be sure to check out www.bebravetogether.com. Until next time, this has been the Be Brave podcast series with your host, Allison Pickens. See you on the next one.